Hey everybody, this is Lisa Gonzalez from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Welcome to the Community Broadband Bits podcast, and I'm here with Chris. Hey Chris, what's going on? Hey Lisa, you know I've been traveling quite a bit lately. Uh, I was That's just, right. I was just in Seattle and Mount Vernon, and before that I was in New England area. A lot of people are doing some interesting things, and I was kind of curious I've, when I was when I've been away from the office. Has there hasn't been any crazy talk? Has there been? Oh, Chris, there's always crazy talk. <laughs> well, then maybe maybe we should talk about some crazy talk today. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, everybody who listens to the podcast knows that there's a big issue going on with the FCC right now. And what they're doing is they are examining some petitions and taking public comments um, because the, the cities of Chattanooga, Tennessee and Wilson, North Carolina filed some petitions. And we've talked about this before also because there are state barriers that are preventing them from expanding and serving the communities around them. There's been all sorts of articles in the news opinions about how they can or cannot do this, how the FCC has no right. And we've seen four different arguments over and over again. And I was thinking this would be a good time for you and me to talk about those four basic arguments. What do you think about that? Yes, let's do that. Okay. Um, well, the first argument and the one that I see more than any other argument is the organizations that want to block the FCC from allowing Chattanooga and Wilson to expand always say that the FCC does not have the authority to remove or prevent these state laws. They don't have the authority to restore local telecommunications authority. Let's let's share some of our thoughts on that, whether or not we think they do. Well, Lisa, as as you know, only one of us is a lawyer, and it's not me. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you have the law degree. Uh, I think we can dismiss this in a, in a rather easy fashion, which is to say that the courts will ultimately decide whether or not the FCC has the authority. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you and I think that it does. The Congress told the FCC that if it found that broadband uh, was not being uh, expanded, particularly a high-speed broadband was not being expanded, sufficiently fast, then it would have extraordinary authority to remove barriers and to mm -hmm. it would have authority beyond what had already granted it. And it didn't do a really good job of defining that authority. NCC, after being told by a circuit court judge, of a D.C. circuit court judge, Judge Silberman, said specifically, that kind of power would allow you to remove laws that are preventing municipalities from building out. So, you know, we know at least one high-level judge thinks that this is pretty clear. Mm -hmm. I think Jim Baller made some great arguments in the petitions. He laid it all out. And and I think ultimately the FCC will hopefully you know, rule in favor of these two petitions. And then undoubtedly the folks that have all of the lawyers that aren't you, uh, <laughs> all the other lawyers, um, they, they will – uh, challenges in the courts, and the courts will decide. So, you know, I, I feel like there's a, a strong case to me the FCC has the authority, but ultimately it's going to be, we'll wait and see what the courts say. I think it also is worth mentioning, and Jim brought this up in the petitions also, is um, that the uh, Telecommunications Act actually gives the FCC the responsibility to um, encourage expansion and to do the things that they need to do to make it happen. And those state laws are not in line with that responsibility. Exactly. Yes, the FCC needs to use uh, any device it can to try and encourage the, mm -hmm. uh, the a better expansion of these networks. So a lot of the organizations that are filing comments that are opposed to granting the petitions 
are going a step further and they're saying these state laws in Tennessee and North Carolina um, are not barriers, but are actually protective measures that the states are taking to help protect the taxpayers. Well, it's really quite interesting that the states would be trying to protect taxpayers from having affordable, reliable, and faster internet access. I, you know, it doesn't seem like a very smart move, certainly. But, you know, when we filed our comments with a number of different organizations back in August uh, on the original comments on these petitions, Common Cause joined in and, and helped write a section specifically about how all these state laws passed. And it wasn't about protecting taxpayers. It was cable and telephone companies lobbying and lying through their teeth about why they were doing it to try and restrict competition. The organizations that are advancing that argument are the ones who helped write those state laws. Yes, exactly. And not only that, but I mean, if you want to protect taxpayers, well, then we should probably not have the uh, U.S. Universal Service Fund or the Connect America Fund, which are paid for uh, with taxes one way or another, uh, whether it's on your phone bill or whether it's, you know, something you send in on on April 15th. Um, This is money that's raised from the public. And in the absence of Wilson or Chattanooga expanding, we're going to see taxpayer dollars being used ultimately to have AT&T or some other private company build out the network. Now, we could have use less taxpayer dollars by having Wilson and Chattanooga build out these networks in areas that uh, the private sector doesn't even want to build. And Chattanooga and Wilson aren't going to use taxpayer dollars. And so, you know, what we find ultimately is that this argument about taxpayer dollars is totally false. If you want to save taxpayer dollars, the best thing we can do is cut these massive subsidies to big companies like Frontier and mm. CenturyLink and AT&T that are doing a terrible job of serving rural areas. Municipal broadband networks, uh, for the most part, use no taxpayer dollars. And to the extent that they do... I would say they're they're much better stewards of those funds than these big companies that do a terrible job of providing service and a really bad job of doing customer service. They don't they don't care about these regions at all. And that goes down to what are the motivations for both the private sector and the public sector. Exactly. And and I'll say one thing further. The idea that these laws are not barriers well, if they're not barriers, why aren't Chattanooga and Wilson expanding? Right, right. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that, that the state has, tells Chattanooga, thou shalt not expand under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. And then these people are like, well, that's not a barrier. It's hard to imagine a bigger barrier. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, right. There's no I suppose worse. you could put a big wall up with, <laughs> with uh, barbed wire on the top. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe that would be a bigger barrier. But, you know, <laughs> that would use some taxpayer dollars. And so... <laughs> And as we talk about the private sector, uh, we should talk a little bit about a couple articles that came out over the weekend um, that just kind of carry on these same arguments. And um, one of the ones I thought was interesting, it was titled Government Broadband Signals Heavier Public Debt. And one of the things that uh, the author talked about and one of the phrases he used was fierce private sector competition. And I thought that was interesting, especially when Comcast and Time Warner Cable say that it's okay, we don't compete with each other. In the past, we've certainly heard from top officials at Comcast as well, telling Wall Street, you know, we really only have one competitor, and that's Verizon Fios. We don't really see the other guys as being competition. Very convenient. It's a very convenient argument when you want it. 
Right, right. Well, it's it's really nice to be a big company that can say one thing to Wall Street and then say another thing to, you know, CNN or to other big mainstream outlets like the New York Times and know that that will be reprinted. And the New York Times won't bother to actually go and see what they've told Wall Street and say, hey, isn't this conflicting? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's really nice to be a big company that has that sort of um, insulation for some reason. I don't know mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I just want to say before we finish this off that we, we should credit David Noel for... For, uh, a dedicated uh, listener and reader of MuniNetworks.org, uh, who sent in these articles to us and asked us to respond to them. Um, Yay, David! <laughs> um, but the the idea that the private sector is is so competitive is is obviously false. Um, mm-hmm. We know that, and and it's really a sign of just how out of touch some in DC are that they feel like they can make that argument and get away with it. It's mm-hmm. it's really quite crazy. You know, and you know what else I thought was interesting is, again, um, the articles that David sent in said the same thing that everybody else says. And I know it is this motivation, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, and eventually people will think it's the truth. And that is that the municipal network landscape is full of failures. And um, it's always the same very small number of networks that are held up as failures. And, and I also think it's interesting what the definition of failure is from these people who make that claim. Sure. They're, they're, it's always shifting. We will hear on one hand them say that they're all failures. And it's really quite odd because you know, we just ran a story on the Dalles in Oregon, which is right on the border with Washington, and how they built a network called QLife. And it resulted in some significant uh, investment in the area from Google and other data centers. And they've actually paid off the debt of that network three years early. Um, and so, you know, this idea that all of them are failures is, is very clearly indefensible. We've, we've talked about so many networks that are successful. Mm-hmm. And so they'll go after some of them. And we, mm-hmm. we really dealt with this in our reply comments mm-hmm. uh, quite handily. In fact, there's this big report from the New York Law School, which is a real joke of a law school. Oh, I mean, yeah. Frankly, Davidson and Santorelli. Yes. So let's just first of all tell people, like, don't go there. This is <laughs> – The Atlantic had a great story about this place. It's um, – you know, some law schools are basically there is a racket to rack up a ton of student debt, get a bunch of student loans that are backed by the government, mm-hmm. and then know that their graduates aren't going to be able to find good jobs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and the New York Law School is one, art, is one of those kinds of schools that came up in the article uh, in The Atlantic that really discussed this. So it's important to understand where this argument's coming from. And then when you actually look at the argument, you found that you find that it's totally full of holes. We we debunked it entirely in our uh, comments to the FCC, and I suspect that we'll eventually put that into some sort of format that other people will be able to see. But the key point is this. These municipal networks generally succeed in uh, on, on all metrics, which is to say that they generate far more benefits than they do costs. And to the extent that they are expected to pay off, then they do quite well. Um, and I say that because, you know, St. Cloud, Florida is sometimes brought up as a failure. Well, this is a city that decided to provide free Wi-Fi mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, over a thousand people were using it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're providing free Wi-Fi, it's not a business model that expects to break even. You know, they were providing a public amenity and the fact that the network didn't pay for itself was designed. And so mm-hmm. to come back and to say, see, these networks always fail. Look at how St. Cloud network didn't pay off. Well, there was no intention to pay off. They weren't collecting money from anyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and and I believe, if I remember correctly, um, there were a lot of things that that community had to change 
um, because of just the, the economy had given them a lot of trouble and there were other places where they had to cut back. And, you know, when they went to go and, and um, cut back the Wi-Fi network, the people in the community didn't like that. Yes, there were some people that protested it. Yeah, they, I mean, they were willing to, they were willing to pay to keep it going, but it was, you know, they, they had a lot of economic trouble in St. Cloud. Absolutely. When the, when the big recession hit, a number of cities had to tighten their belts and, Mm -hmm. and they decided at that point that with their, their, their revenue stream, that the Wi-Fi network was something that had to go. Mm -hmm. Again, that's not a failure. Cities have to make decisions all the time as to what to prioritize and something you can prioritize in a good year may be different from something you can prioritize in a bad year. Those are the sorts of decisions that they make. Elected officials are elected to make those decisions. Um, and so I just, I bring that up as a, as a reason that we need to be careful how we're evaluating these networks. When you look at the metrics, the reasons that the networks were built, overwhelmingly they meet them. Uh, some of them take longer to break even financially than forecast because uh, the private sector may dramatically cut the rates of their networks so that it's harder for the municipal network to get enough subscribers mm-hmm. to meet its projections. But that itself actually is yet and again a benefit of the municipal network because then you have thousands, tens of thousands of people that have more money in their pockets mm-hmm. every week. Sure, they're benefiting whether they're using it or not. Exactly. And so, you know, it's just one of those things that that one has to be careful when we're figuring out. Now, there are some networks that have struggled and that we would say are currently failures. However, uh, those networks could very well, you know, generate so many benefits over the next 10 years that that would balance out uh, the failures and the problems that Mm -hmm. they've had because this is a very long-lived infrastructure. And we know from over 100 years of utility, um, of municipal electric utility in particular, uh, you know, investment that cities are perfectly capable of of offering these very technical services. Um, over time, it will become less technical. And they do a great job of making sure that they're reinvesting and providing a high-quality, low-cost, reliable product. On that note... I think we should finish up. What else? Anything else that we should that we should offer? Well, I think for people who are listening to Crazy Talk, you will probably be really interested in a paper we're just releasing called uh, Correcting Community Fiber Fallacies, which is a series. But in particular, we looked at a report from Stephen Titch, a guy who's long opposed any kind of municipal networks as long as someone would cut him a check to take that position. <laughs> and we've responded point by point to claims that he makes in uh, an article. Uh, a long paper that he wrote attacking Lafayette, Louisiana. As I recall, that was a really big job. Yes. Yeah, there was a lot of points to discuss. And and I think that this is a, you know, it's a, on the left side is his paper, on the right is our response on each page. And I think this will be a tremendous resource for people who want to understand how some people will oppose their networks and how they can respond. And frankly, they can make the judgment call whether uh, whether the arguments that we present are stronger or whether Stephen's arguments are stronger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As they should. Exactly. I mean, I think they should take a look at it. And I think this could be a great tool for anyone that's considering uh, whether or not a municipal network could be a wise investment for their community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. Thank you, Lisa, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you in the office for some time soon. Okay, sounds good. Look for our report, Correcting Community Fiber Fallacies, The Reality of Lafayette's Gigabit Network. The report will be available soon at muninetworks.org and ilsr.org. 
Thanks again to David Knoll for sharing the articles we addressed in the podcast, and thank you for listening. Send us your ideas for the show, like David did. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at communitynets. This week, we want to thank Jesse Evans for the song, Is It Fire? Licensed through Creative Commons. Have a great day. 